Testing. How's that? Good. Hello. Good evening. So let's everybody take a deep breath. Or three. And just feel your feet on the ground and your butt on the seat and hear the sounds in the room as it settles down. And be grateful that you actually can hear them. Mm. So my name is Gina Sharp, and I'm really happy to see you all here tonight. Do we have someone teaching in the other room? No? We, who, it's Dalila? Okay, no, that's fine. I just wanted to know. So if anyone is here who, um, who would appreciate or benefit from instructions for meditation, uh, we have Dalila teaching in the, uh, in the classroom, and the people in there will join us after after our sit, so please feel free if, uh, if that would benefit you. So we start by um, saying hello to each other, um, and just appreciating the fact that we are all here together supporting each other, that our presence here, our individual presence is supportive to everyone else, and everyone else's presence is supportive to us. So please meet your neighbors. And she's working? Ah, yeah. <laughs> That's so great. Hmm. Hmm. 
So we'll sit together for 40 minutes and uh, and see what happens. We'll let the evening unfold, right? I'll just say a few things even though I'm not supposed to. <laughs> just to get us started. Mm-hmm. So no doubt we've had, we've each had a, a, a busy day, a day of work. It's the fortunate person who's been able to sit rather than work today. <clears throat> so I suspect most of us have, are coming from activity. So rather than trying to sit and in a straight jacket and make yourself get still, notice activity. Notice it internally, in the mind and body. And notice the activity of whatever is happening, of people coming in and settling down. And include all of that in your practice. This cardinal rule of it's not what's happening, but our relationship to it, is so much what we are training in our practice. Our ability to sit in a relatively still way, allowing the body, the mind, and the heart to settle into approximate stillness and allow what is arising to have its life and to pass away. Not trying to stop the flow of the river, but actually being that flow So whether we are paying attention to the breath, the in and out, or the rising and falling, or the whole body breathing, or practicing uh, open awareness, allowing the attention to uh, to shine on whatever arises, watching its the arc of its coming into existence, being here for a while, and passing away. Whatever it is we choose, however, whatever style or technique of meditation we choose, our stillness is way, really a way of giving over the activity of mind, heart, and body for these moments that we sit together. To allow the mind to be trained to come back, come back, come back. So that it's not whether the mind moves away because it's used to being busy during the day but how we are when it moves away. Our willingness to 
bring it back with kindness, tenderness, gentleness, loving awareness. Allow that to be your keynote of practice tonight. So I'd like to just let you know what's happening at New York Insight. Uh, Tomorrow evening, there's an event volunteer training. So uh, we rely, as you know, on volunteers to um, create a welcome and organized atmosphere for all of our events. And if you would like to um, contribute to the community in that way, we run trainings every once in a while just so that you know where everything is and you know what we how we do things so um, if you want to become an active member of our sangha you can that's one way of doing it and we have a volunteer training tomorrow night from 6:30 to 8 on Friday there's a, a potluck we have one we have potlucks once a month and usually there's a movie and uh, just a a way of getting to know other people in the community. Rosemary Blake and Sandra Weinberg, two of our teachers, will be offering a day of silence on Saturday from 10 to 5 and it's a beautiful way if you've not ever been on a retreat or or you have been on a retreat and you're jonesing for a retreat and you don't have the time. Uh, it's a really great way to uh, spend a day and, and taste what it's like to um, to really progressively sit in silence and taste uh, stillness and see uh, what emerges. So they'll be, you know, they'll do they'll probably do some offer time if you want to talk to them, and but they offer reflections and but it's it's mostly a beautiful day of. Silence, I always appreciate those. There's Knitting Sangha on Saturday, March 21st from 6 to 8. A beginner's workshop for those of you who would like a more, uh, more of an immersion in the, uh, in the introduction for on sa- Sunday from 10 to 1. It's a busy week, wow. Uh, and two of my very dearest friends in the Dharma, uh, Kitisaro and Tanisara, will be coming to teach at New York Insight. Uh, they'll do an evening called Listening to the Heart, and they'll be signing their new book, which is Listening to the Heart. It's absolutely beautiful. And that's from 7 to 9 on on March 27th. They're, if you've not uh, met them or you don't know them, they are both... Um, they were ordained Sangha in the Theravadan tradition for... Uh, I think both of them for a, close to 20 years and uh, fell in love and disrobed and got married and, and um, are teaching. They established um, a, a 
hermitage in South Africa, a really beautiful place that it's a beautiful, gorgeous place to practice. It's in the Drakensberg Mountains. And uh they'll be they they come they go there I think pretty much the beginning of the year for three months every year and then teach in the United States and so they'll be they'll be here in March and if you if you really can do it they're also doing a weekend Saturday and Sunday uh, March 27th to 28th and of course we have all of our usual offerings and these uh, these flyers are outside so if you want to know what's happening you can always look or go online uh, one of the ways in which we um, New York Insight has, has grown from what we call the Buddha buggy uh, in the beginning, and I see, is that Joseph over there? Joseph Schmidt? No, I thought it was, I thought I saw him. Um, five of us had this crazy idea. We were kids with an idea to uh, establish a, a Vipassana center in the city because there wasn't one at the time. And we didn't have a whole lot of money or a whole lot of resources, but we had a tremendous amount of faith in the Dharma, and we started out with what we call the Buddha buggy, which is that we would rent spaces for our sittings and spaces for... We'd have visiting teachers because we were fortunate to have some of the most wonderful teachers in the tradition come to New York and... um, give talks and day-longs, and um, we had this Buddha buggy, which was a um, a suitcase, a, a small suitcase that had a Buddha, a candle, a cloth like that, and a vase, and a bell. And that was our, that was our center, right? And uh, we did that for, I think, about uh, nine years, and finally got this center um, about ten year, a little bit more than ten years ago, and um, it's it really has thrived because of the uh, the tradition of generosity in which we all swim. And uh, it, thinking about generosity these days has been really amazing for me because some of you know that my husband's very ill, and um, I've received the most amazing, amazing notes and letters and phone calls and offers of um, all kinds of things like food and somebody offered to come and clean for us and somebody offered to come and do walks with me and massages and it's just been, we've been showered with this amazing uh, offers of complete selfless generosity by our community. And it's been so impressive that um, the, uh, the invitation to develop generosity, a heart of generosity, and to live and swim in an ocean of generosity has uh, created this kind of community and so that's, um, that's the spirit in which we offer these teachings and this beautiful refuge for us to sit and 
um, listen to the Dharma and practice together and support each other. And so when you come to a sitting, you've noticed, I'm sure that you don't pay any fee, but we do have a box and two boxes, one in here and one in the uh, outside, I think. Uh, and so if you are moved to support what we offer and uh, to continue this beautiful river of generosity that has been established from the time of the Buddha until now to support these teachings, you are uh, really welcome to make an offering in, in one of those boxes, whatever you can afford, and uh, to do so in a sacred way. Uh, and what I mean by that is don't just take some money out of your wallet and dump it in the box, right? We, you know, which we're New Yorkers, so we know how to rush. But really take your time. And if you want to make an offering, and you do make an offering, do it um, really consciously that the, with the understanding that every time we make a generous gesture, whether it's of our time, of our money, of our friendship, of our love, of our care, that it grows in us. And not only does it grow in us, but it grows in our atmosphere, which is what I've really been witnessing since my husband's illness, that generosity is a, it, it's a, it's a, it, it just grows. Every time you uh, cultivate it in your heart and your mind, it grows in your entire environment. So I invite you to practice really beautifully with generosity and learn it. Learn it in a sincere way. Um, because one of the things that I've, I've really felt is that uh, my own practice of generosity has, um, has cultivated around us a, that atmosphere of generosity, which is so beautiful to live in. It really is amazing. And of course, we don't do it so that we'll get something back, right? That's not generosity. But, but we, we witness and we recognize that when we do make these kinds of um, uh, efforts to cultivate a heart of generosity, it is, it, it is a beautiful uh, flower that opens. So I want to thank in that spirit, uh, Kara and Deepak for uh, volunteering. Thank you. And as you know, um, on these Tuesday nights when I come in, um, we, instead of a Dharma talk we given by me, we write the, we cooperate together to, um, to offer Dharma. So the Dharma comes from uh, the questions that you ask. And I'd love it if there are if there is somebody in the room who's been dying to ask a question and has come back over and over and been too shy to do it, that's the person that I'd like to start. Don't want it, you're so shy, you don't even want to identify yourself, right? All right. Anybody else? <laughs> <laughs>
Deepak, yeah. Hi, Gina. Hi, Deepak. I've started to uh, more conscientiously practice mindfulness while in bed, before going to sleep, and then after waking up. And I've been finding it challenging, and I was wondering if you had some thoughts on that. Challenging in what way? So my experience is when I go to bed, I'm being mindful, and then there's sloth and torpor, uh, more torpor, <laughs> and then I stop being mindful. And then what? And then I stop being mindful uh-huh. because of the torpor. And then one of two things happens. Either I go to sleep or I have some kind of afflictive emotion come up because some story starts to go in my head and since I'm not being mindful, it, and then it wakes me up. It wakes you up? Yes. So you go to sleep and then you wake up? No. Uh, you don't go to sleep? I regain mindfulness because the afflictive emotion wakes me up. So what kind of afflictive emotions would you like to share that with us? Uh, recent happenings that uh, weren't like uh, no relationship breakups, that kind of thing. Oh, what? Break, relationship breakups and that kind of thing. Mm. How many people have had a relationship breakup? <laughs> Come on, those of you who didn't raise your hand. No. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So what's the problem? I guess my question is, is it possible to stay mindful all the way until I get to sleep? Or do I have to, get, do I have to lose it? <laughs> do you regain it? Uh, do I have to lose it in order to f- fall asleep? Does the mindfulness do you have to lose your me? mindfulness to fall asleep? Wow, that's an interesting question. Hmm. So first of all, uh, I don't even know where to begin. So sloth and torpor, what's the So when you're not lying down, right? When you're practicing, just practicing with sitting up or standing or walking, however you do it. Do you ever feel sloth and torpor? Yes. Okay. Is it different than when you're lying down? Not so much. Okay. So it's the same sloth and, well, similar sloth and torpor. It's never the same, right? So it's similar sloth and torpor. And what's the problem with it? You say you lose your mindfulness. So when you're sitting, do you ever lose mindfulness? Yes. And then what happens? Usually something similar. Some afflictive emotion will come up and it will wake me up. Like, oh, mm-hmm. that's anger. And then it, I wake up and I regain mindfulness. So, it's, so, you, so the, the cycle is you, you lose your mindfulness anger arises and then you regain your mindfulness yes what's the problem uh, I'm just thinking about sleeping uh, so when I regain mindfulness the topper is kind of gone yeah 
And then I'm confused. I'm like, should I be trying to sleep? And so let torpor take me. So do you have to be torpid in order to sleep? Torpid and without mindfulness. Tor torpid and without mindfulness to fall asleep. I guess that's my question. <laughs> What do you think? I've been experimenting with practicing mindfulness in a more passive way, so it requires less effort. What's your, what's your definition of mindfulness? Paying attention to what is happening, how, how I'm feeling, what my thoughts are. How do you pay attention? Uh, usually a sense of witnessing. A sense of witnessing? Yes. And then what happens? Uh, usually when there's a sense of witnessing, there's not much torpor. And so, when you're, so when you're paying attention, there's this feeling of being awake. Yes. Right? And so you're, what it's, I think I'm understanding your question to be, if I'm awake, then I can't sleep. And if I want to fall asleep, I can't be awake. Yes, in terms of... That's kind of a tautology. In terms of mindfulness, do I have to But let go of my mindfulness in order to fall asleep? Well, what I, so I'll tell you what my experience is with that. I won't, I'll stop playing cat and mouse with you and, okay. and tell you what my experience is. My experience is that if I'm, if I'm having trouble sleeping... The best way for me to fall asleep is to pay attention to what it's like to have trouble falling asleep. And usually, if I'm paying attention to what it's like to have trouble falling asleep, that's mindfulness, right? Yes. So I'm, I'm lovingly, tenderly, and kindly aware of the fact that this poor being wants to sleep and is having a hard time, right? Okay. And when, when I do that, then what begins to happen is whatever anxiety it was that was keeping the body tense or away from sleep begins to relax itself. And you'll notice that I'm not saying that I relax but that in the, in the space of a mindful heart and mind, what needs to release, releases itself. So it feels to me from the tenor of your question that you may be trying a little bit too hard, and the very trying makes for tension. And so the tension will prevent both mindfulness and, and sleep, right? You, you, we all know that one of the biggest barriers to falling asleep or, or one of the biggest causes of insomnia is anxiety or tension. So mindfulness, if practiced correctly, will usually tend to... Uh, allow what is tight and tense and holding to let go, to release, or as my um, Dzogchen 
Master used to say to self-liberate. Right? So we're when we're when we're paying attention or we're making uh some room for mindfulness, you use the word passive. It's not really passive in the sense of we're just gonna let anything take us that wants to. But it's it's a it's a more active understanding of truly what it is we're doing, so and and making sure that we we really are um, true to what it is we intend to do, which is to pay attention. But that paying attention is not a paying attention filled with tension. It's a paying attention filled with tenderness and care and love. It's loving awareness. And that will help us to fall asleep if that's what we want to do, and it will also wake us up if that's what we want to do. So that the two are not battling with each other, but actually becoming partners. So we have a circadian rhythm. When we need to fall asleep, we'll fall asleep because there is nothing in the mind and body that is, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm assuming there is not some disease or something that is actually, you know, physically causing the insomnia, but a kind of um, way in which we approach our mindfulness that can make us tense and tight rather than help us to relax and calm. And, and when I say help us to relax and calm, it's not encouraging us to say, okay, now I have to be calm, <laughs> right? But to actually pay attention. That's our job is we pay attention and everything else takes care of itself. But there is a, um, it's a wise paying attention as well as a loving paying attention. And that wisdom is understanding what the purpose of meditation and mindfulness are. And what are they? They're allowing us to live a life of wisdom and integrity. Right? So if there's anything that's on our minds where we feel, you know, we've moved away from integrity, that may be keeping us awake, right? So that's one of the really good reasons to live a life of integrity so we can go to sleep without worrying about what we did or the lie we told or the thing we stole or, or the person we cheated on or whatever it is. So that if we're living a life of integrity, the body and mind and heart are at peace. So when we want to go to sleep, we can go to sleep. And there, and there is also wisdom in the mindfulness as well as the loving kindness and the loving awareness. There's us, so we're smart about the way we're paying attention, right? We know that we're paying attention to whatever arises. And why are we doing that? We're doing that because we know that if we can really pay attention we will deeply understand that understanding and wisdom come not so much from the rational mind, but really from the intuitive heart that knows how to observe in a way that fills us with information about the mystery of this life. 
right? So that you're, you're falling asleep when you need to fall asleep and you're waking up when you need to wake up. Thank you. You're welcome. So following up on that... May I have your name? Carolyn. Carolyn, hi. Hi. Can the wise heart help direct things? Or is it just, I hate to use the word passive, but passively observing as things unfold? I, yeah. I, I, I want to be able to yeah. you know, move forward versus just watching and observing. Yeah, what do you think? You just said yes, so I think yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, but there's more to be said about that. You know, I I was speaking to someone tonight about equanimity, which I called uh, the empress of the qualities of mind and heart of a Buddha. Right? So equanimity is is, uh, something that sometimes we talk about it in a way that is really confusing. So I I hope I won't do that tonight. It's the seventh of the seven factors of awakening. It's the tenth parami. It's the fourth Brahma-vihara. So there's something important about that particular quality and cultivating that quality in our mind-heart. Okay? And And it's often confused as a passive quality. It is so active, it would, could make your mind spin, right? Because actually, equanimity, this developing this quality of equanimity, is uh, the word in Pali is upeka, often, um, often translated as looking over, which means that we have this huge, wide-angled view of whatever it is we're in. We're not so caught in our narrow, uh, shallow way of looking at our lives that there is no wisdom there. But equanimity, because it's always um, expressed as acceptance, people confuse that with passivity. But the reason it's, it's expressed as acceptance is because that's where it starts. And where does acceptance comes, come from? It comes from mindful practice, right? So we're accepting everything that's arising, everything. Nothing is excluded. We're having a wide view. Oh, this is anger, as Deepak was saying. Oh, this is sadness. This is rage. This is beauty. This is love. This is hate. This is... Whatever is happening in the mind, heart, body is accepted in that way because we're, it's seen. It, we're, we're in mindfulness, we're shedding a light on our experience so that we actually see what's happening really clearly. But, it's, it, but that's just the beginning of the practice of equanimity. 
the the next step of the practice of equanimity is because we are seeing so clearly we understand the appropriate response and we make it but we're if we're if we're making an appropriate response it's not coming from greed it's not coming from hatred and it's not coming from delusion therefore there is no suffering in it if however we are not seeing clearly we're not understanding what's really true our response will be inappropriate and more likely than not will be coming from greed or hatred or delusion or all three and will be entirely inappropriate and will bring terrible karma terrible consequences karma vipaka so so the so the mindfulness practice is only one limb of the eightfold path it's it's three of the branches and which is you know mindfulness concentration effort mindfulness and concentration and um the other two limbs are wisdom and integrity and all three of them are intertwined they're not separate but of course didactically they need to be explained separately so sometimes because of how we hear it we get the impression that meditation is kind of you know up there that's the thing and if i meditate then everything's just going to be fine it's going to be great and then we get disappointed because we're meditating and yes we're watching <laughs> we're witnessing we're witnessing we're witnessing and we're not really acting appropriately but if we if we're if we understand the holistic um the whole of the the whole of the path then we know that wisdom and integrity are what feed into meditation and meditation feeds them too so it's a it's not a linear path it's a it's a um psychohologram it everything is seen through everything else right so that this quality of equanimity is like my favorite teaching ever because it can be a whole life practice is how do we bring equanimity into every situation so that we minimize suffering because if we if there's one person in the sinking boat in the boat that's rocking and sinking that's equanimous it will be saved because there's one person who's seeing clearly what needs to be done does that help yes carolyn thank you thank you yes carolyn it does thank you okay thanks Hi. Hi. I'm Rachel. Hi, Rachel. Um, I have been struggling a lot with self-judgment. Um, 
And I realize this is normal. Um, Whatever that is. Right. Uh, I guess I'm looking for some skillful means for dealing with it. How do you deal with it now? Well, I've been trying a lot of different things. Um, I have developed... First there's seeing it. Then there's aversion to the fact that it's there. Ah. Sometimes there's not aversion. Sometimes I'm like, oh, there's self-judgment. And it kind of... And I sort of can accept it, and it sort of dissipates. But sometimes there's aversion. So do you have a particular brand of self-judgment? I have so many brands of (laughs) self-judgment. And I've come up with so many different images of self-judgment. I mean, there's Mm -hmm. like... The atmosphere of self-judgment. There's like little gremlins that grab onto me. Yeah, but me. I mean, by, I'm, I want to get down to it. Yeah. It's like, are you, are you lazy, hateful, um, shameful, uh, guilty? You know, what's the particular brand of, brand of self-judgment? Um, I guess I'm aversive. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so just the fact that you said, I guess, tells me that you're not really looking at self-judgment. Okay. That you're keeping some kind of distance away from it. Because there's, there's still the, um, the sneaking suspicion that you're actually right when you judge yourself. <laughs> Could be true. Okay. Yeah. So what's the point of having to you know, bother knowing it? Right, if you're right, and that's that goes for so many of our thoughts and the ways in which we relate to our thought, is that we get so drowned in the uh, ocean of rightness about the thought that we actually think that it's a thing. You know, John Oliver on, in his show, he always at the end he always says, "How is this still a thing?" Right. Now, how is, how is it that as mindfulness people, it's still a thing that there are certain thoughts that we think are so true and so real we don't have to be mindful of them. And, and I, th- I think we probably don't teach mindfulness of thoughts enough so that you know, we're very good at mindfulness of the body, of knowing the sensations in the body and knowing what it feels like, what heat and cold and uh, tingling and all of those sensations feel. Fine, we're great at that. And then we may even be good at emotions. We know what anger feels like and we know how it feels in the body and we know all of that. But then it comes to thoughts and we say, "Uh uh-uh, those are right. We don't have to be mindful of them. And yet they're probably uh, the number one uh, reason for our delusion is how we think, right? Because so much of it is perception. It's not really objectively true. It's what we think is true. And yet we don't spend a lot of our mindfulness capital in looking at what what it actually is like to think. Do you know what it's like to think? What's it like to think? It's like there's a thought that there's 
there's something there, and then there's a train of things happening. Okay, but actually, if we're really paying attention to our thoughts, we see the impulse that happens right before the thought appears. So for me, what I've noticed is there's like a little, and then the thought appears full-blown. I go, whoa, look at that. Wow. You know, I just had this thought about that person's appearance or what they said or what I feel about them or something. And, but if I'm looking at it, not in terms of content, but just in the process, what is the process of a thought? How does it appear? What is it like? Is it stable as it stays in the mind? Or is it shaking? Or is it moving? Or is it shifting? And how does it disappear? Have we really seen that? So that's why we need to really cultivate stillness and quiet in our lives. Because we are ruled by these damn things, right? We are ruled by what we think, totally ruled by it. And we haven't got the faintest idea about how they appear in the mind. Something so simple, how does a thought appear? Who asked it to appear? Who told it to appear? And if, because if we know that, if we see that, if we see the total um, adventitious nature of the appearance of a thought, it doesn't rule us quite so much anymore. It's like, oh, there it goes. Uh-huh. Okay. Next. So self-judgment, it's a thing. No, it's not. It's a thought that appears like every other thought. Oh, you're so lazy. What's wrong with you? There it goes. So that this idea that self-judgment is like this thing that I have to get rid of becomes just another thought that appears in the sky of the mind, appears full-blown, twinkles like a star, and then dies like the morning star. That's right. pretty good, right? Yeah, that would be great. <laughs> that would be great, <laughs> yeah. right? So, so, so that's how we start to... So if we're really paying attention, we're not just paying attention to the substance we're paying, or, or the, the content. We're paying attention to the process. It's really important to pay attention to process. Really important. Really important to pay attention to process. Thank you. You're welcome. Josh. Hi, I'm Josh. Um, I actually want to just make a comment because I, I, on this I thought, thought was so interesting. I was on this retreat recently and one of the teachers, Anushka, was talking about this very thing and she said something that, that resonated in this way as well, which was she was talking about how people often will say, well, I had a dream and they'll describe a dream that they had, and it's a crazy dream, and they were on top of a dragon, and then they slayed their mother, and then they're swimming in a cauldron of fire. And, but they always describe it as being like, yeah, I had this crazy dream. And she said, 
why is it that it, that's just a thought too? Mm-hmm. For some reason, with thoughts, we assume those are real. Mm-hmm. But the mind is doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. So I just found that so mm-hmm. interesting to think of it that mm-hmm. way. Thanks. I've been struggling with whether I should ask this question, but it's some. Ah, you were the one I was after in the beginning. Yeah, thank you. How do you deal with feeling that there is no one to nurture you in an unnurturing world? Um, I struggle with this all the time. Um, I have uh, quite a few family members, but they aren't supportive family members. I have children who want me to do things for them. Um, I have a few friends, but I don't really feel that I have anybody to nurture me. Mm-hmm. And I go around feeling afraid all the time and very, very alone. I had a situation today where I went to the doctor. I had a little skin cancer that has to be removed. And I so wanted to, I, I had this daydream that I wanted to go home to a family mm. that I could tell about it and that they would hug me and say, it's going to be okay. Mm. There is nothing in my life like that. And I was reading about how the world, you know, we, all we have to do is look at the world and it's become crueler and crueler. And I find myself being, it, living, there's a feeling of mm. pain in my life that, how do I find this nurturing? Mm. And I think, well, maybe I have to find it in myself. Mm. But how, how can you do that? How do you do that for mm. yourself? Mm. What's your name? Susan. Susan. So, Susan, how long have you been practicing? A year. Mm-hmm. And have you, have you done metta practice? A little, yes, but I stopped doing it. Ah. Mm-hmm. Why, why did you stop? Um, I kind of forgot to, I guess. Mm. I don't... Mm. I slid out of it. So, so how many people have felt or feel right now that um, the world is cruel and that uh, there's sometimes this feeling of wanting to be nurtured, wanting to be held, and there's nobody there to hold you or to nurture you. How many of you have felt that? Wow. Mm. Okay. Uh, Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, uh, the basic practice, the basic practice um, or the basic teaching in our practice is uh, the Four Noble Truths. Mm -hmm. And these Four Noble Truths, we kind of sometimes think, yeah, yeah, that's for beginners. Right? Mm -hmm. But actually, it's a very profound teaching. Mm -hmm. And it starts, it starts, the first truth, is there is dukkha. There is dukkha. There is dukkha. But it goes, the, the uh, two aspects that are not discussed much 
of what the Buddha taught is, he said, there is dukkha. Dukkha must be, should be understood. And then he said, dukkha has been understood. And I have a couple of interpretations of that third one, but I'll, I'll get to the second one first, which is, do we really understand it? And do we understand it as a universal truth? Which is why I asked everybody to put their hands up. So there's loneliness and alienation and bitterness and um, ingratitude and um, all of the ways in which we feel as if we are alone in this world. Right? And there's a, there's a way in which that's true. And there's also a way in which that is completely untrue that we live in a large universe, in a really beautiful universe that also sometimes manifests as cruel or unkind. You know, if we look at nature, we, you know, we, we elevate nature as something really beautiful, you know, the beautiful trees. And the, but if we look at it, you know, beings need to eat each other in order to survive, Right? in the animal world, and we are animals too, so we sometimes take that on actually as truth for us too. But what the Buddha was pointing to was really profound, because he was saying, look around, and it's true universally, it's not just you, it's not just me, it's not just all of the people who put their hands up, and I suspect everybody really could have put their hands up because they're each one of us at some point in our lives felt this it's like nobody loves me no there's nobody there to embrace me to hold me everybody wants something from me and this feeling of burden so this pointing to understanding that really asks us to examine it deeply. What's this feeling that I have? What's this feeling that I have that I can't be nurtured? I haven't been nurtured. Nobody wants to nurture me. Is that really true? It may be true for you. I don't know. And then to find what actually does nurture you so that you can un- so the understanding of dukkha is its presence and its absence. What's it like when it's actually present in my life? And then he goes on to the second noble truth, which is to um, ask us to look at what's the cause of this dukkha. And it's this clinging mind that either wants something that it doesn't have, or hate something that it does have and wants to push it away, so we're either grasping or pushing away, or is just so confused that it doesn't even know what it really needs. And what he says is that should be abandoned. And can we really practice with that? Can we really practice with noticing when this 
grasping and aversion and confusion are present and figuring out through our wisdom how that gets abandoned. And of course there's the third truth which is that there is freedom from this dukkha. And the dukkha has kind of two aspects to it. One is that everything feels unsatisfactory all the time. It does. It feels like something's always falling short no matter how much we try. Something's always wrong, right? Really, and it, you know, we've all felt it, right? It's like, oh my God, when can I just have a perfect moment at some point, right, in my life? So there's that aspect of it, but there's always... There's also the second aspect of it, which is the suffering from that. And to and so we're looking at pulling back from that. And of course there's the path which we talked about before of meditation and wisdom and integrity. So within that whole teaching, there are so many different ways, so many uh, uh, teachings that were given about working with different aspects or different emanations of those four truths. So loving-kindness, for instance, is a, um, is a practice where we, um, we really develop and cultivate a heart and a mind of love, of, friend, of deep friendliness towards everything, even towards our alienation even towards our feeling like everybody wants something from me and nobody wants to give me anything. How do we find a place in our hearts and our minds to have compassion for that one who feels that? To start there. So that um, the compassion practice and the the metta practice are really antidotes to this feeling of alienation and isolation. So if we can begin with a heart that is friendly and kind towards ourselves, there is at least that being that we can rely on. If there's nobody else, there is at least this one that I can say, when I'm really feeling down or I'm really feeling isolated or I'm really feeling alienated, oh, Oh, I, I feel, I, I see the suffering, I feel the suffering, and may I be free from it. May I be, feel, find the way to have even the slightest amount of happiness, independent of what everybody else is doing, I can in this body, in this moment, in this world, feel some care for this being. And it's a serious thing. It's, it's not, it may feel in the beginning when you learn met, metta practice, it may feel a little bit cheesy, right? A little bit corny, a little bit, you know, it's not what I'm really feeling. But the, the mind and the heart wear grooves into where we put it. So what the, the Buddha's way, I was telling somebody else this tonight, too, the, the way the Buddha put it is he said, where we put the mind, 
that's where it inclines. So if we have, if we're developing a mind that is loving, that in itself makes the mind loving. So if we put the mind towards love, that's where it starts to go. If we put the mind towards care, that's where it starts to go. If we, and now the neuroscientist 2,500 years later said, big discovery, <laughs> right? The brain, if, we, if we, we can wear grooves into the brain, right? By simply practicing in a particular way. So, you know, because they said each time you have a thought, the mind wears a groove. A groove is worn into the mind of that thought, and so then you have more of those same thoughts, right? So, so that what begins to happen also as we do the metta practice is we're not only loving and kind towards ourselves, but the world starts to become somewhat more um, kind and loving, and we become more loving and kind towards other beings. And it takes a while. You know, so we don't want to talk about these practices as if, oh, okay, here's the prescription, you just go do that for a couple of weeks and you'll be good, right? It's a lifetime's work. And can you have the patience and the determination and the truthfulness? Can you really appreciate what it means to tell yourself the truth and what that and how you determine what the truth is? Can you be really... Um, fierce about telling yourself the truth and um, to not put so much pressure on yourself that you're going to solve it you know in the next few weeks and you know and and talk to your friends and talk to your family and talk to whoever is of support to you about this feeling of alienation and this feeling of loneliness or not caring or vulnerability, to really um, not be ashamed of it. And I'm so happy you asked the question. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. (laughs) You're welcome. Last one. We have a few minutes. I would really appreciate it if you could just wait to leave because it really disrupts the flow of the evening for everybody else. Thank you. Yeah. Hi, I'm Nico. I'm really sorry. What's this your name? Nico. Nico. It's probably a real too big of a question, but yeah, it's always the one. That's always <laughs> the, always the, the one, one that gets asked. You know, when we have three minutes left. <laughs> I'm sorry, but just thinking about what was said. Where does equanimity fit into this? So equanimity is um, equanimity is the fourth Brahma Vihara, which is you know loving kindness, compassion, um, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. And it's always been interesting to me that equanimity is part of those you know is, is the fourth of those that group um, because it sometimes feels as if equanimity is like a distant thing. But actually, equanimity um, supports all of those qualities because you, you, you're, you're, you're not wanting to fall into any kind of extreme. 
So equanimity, so, you know, loving kindness, it's not some weak kind of namby-pamby quality of heart, right? It's a really strong quality where you can actually meet every single being with equal friendliness and every being with equal compassion. So you have the same amount of compassion for yourself as you do for everybody else. And it, and so these quality, these loving, these Brahma Viharas, we call them, these four Brahma Viharas are not Nambi Pambi kind of, oh, so I'll send you a Valentine and you'll send me one back, right? But it's learning how to infuse kindness with wisdom. And equanimity is that wise quality that actually knows that there is a rhythm to life that there's gain and loss and pleasure and pain and fame and disrepute and praise and blame. And these are all coming and going all the time. The Buddha called them the worldly winds, right? The worldly dharmas. So, So that when we understand this, then we're not cursing when we have what I call the debit side of the ledger. We're not cursing because we're blamed. We're not cursing because we have loss or disrepute, or um, displeasure. We're saying, oh, this is part of the rhythm of life, right? And so because we are even and have a large view in in, in the true sense of equanimity, then our kindness is even deeper. Our compassion is certainly deeper because we understand that every being has to sustain uh, some equilibrium in the midst of these worldly winds. And that wisdom informs loving-kindness, it informs equanimity, it it informs uh, compassion, it informs um, sympathetic joy. So that we're not... uh, it's what Martin Luther King, you know, when he referred to power and love, and he said they're, they're thought of, and I think of power, equanimity as power, and he said they're thought of as uh, um, polar opposites. He said, so you think of, uh, you know, that, that uh, power and love are, have to be separate, but he said actually um, they, they need each other. And that power without love is abusive and reckless. And love without power is anemic and weak. So that we're putting them together to make a really powerful mix where our love is infused with power and our power is infused with love. So they're not there like that. They're not separate. Qualities. It's not like somebody over there has the power and I have all the love, right? But we're working really towards how do we, how do we have both qualities so that when we love, it's a powerful thing that can accomplish what is needed. And when we have power, it's tempered with love so that it's, it doesn't become out of control and abusive and reckless. Does that help? Great.
So thank you so much for your contributions to, uh, to the Dharma talk. And um, we end our evenings by um, dedicating the merit of the practice which creates a field of goodness and a field of merit. And rather than holding all of that to ourselves, we generously take that merit and we come together in this field of goodness and cast all of the merit over the whole world, infusing the merit of our practice with kindness and with compassion and with equanimity and giving it away to the whole world. And we wish that all beings everywhere, without exception, are benefited by the practice and the reflections that we have done tonight. And we call to mind now any beings in our lives who might benefit from this field of goodness. And we bring them into the room. And if you'd like, you can say their name out loud, John. Anastasia and Amelia, Marilyn. And we feel the presence of all of these beings and we shower them with our care, our kindness, our well-wishing for their peace, their safety, their happiness, their health, and their freedom from suffering. And we imagine that all the beings in the whole world, however many billions of us there are, are in this room, in this building with us. And we shower it with our blessings and our wishes that all beings be safe from harm, happy and peaceful, healthy and strong, and live with ease. May it be so. Thank you so much for your attention and your practice tonight. May you be well and safe. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.